Welcome back to another episode of the Next Level Minds podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, this is a podcast dedicated to those who want to reach a next level in their business, personal, or career life. Every other week, I'm blessed to sit down with a qualified guest and walk through their story of how they have gotten from point A to point B and overcame various adversities along the way. Today's guest has absolutely exploded the IT and entrepreneurial industry. I'm blessed to be sitting down with John Espy, the CEO of Lobby CRE, which is a data analytics management platform designed for commercial real estate. I'll briefly walk you through John's story. He joined a startup called Amintra in 2003, ultimately became its COO as he scaled it and ultimately sold it to Red Hat in 2008. He spent two years running a middleware consulting for Red Hat until he left in 2010 to start a smart grid company called NextGrid. He ran that as COO for three years before stepping down from the day-to-day operations, and he raised $10 million for it in the process. Then he launched Reward Summit, a credit card marketing app platform, and they were blessed to be featured on the App Store, learned a ton about payments, mobile wallets, UI, UX development, DevOps, and cloud automation. Then he pivoted and launched Level, a service-based IT consulting firm. And under John's leadership, he grew Level to over 200 people in 10 offices on four different continents. Him and his team grew Level to $40 million in annual revenue. And also, Level was recognized as the top 6% fastest growing companies in America. Since stepping down from Level, he has invested in eight or nine startups and joined several board of directors and advisory boards. And as I mentioned prior, John is currently the active CEO of Lobby CRE. And I uh, just wanted to personally thank each and every one of you for tuning in. Today's episode is going to be packed with a ton of value, going through topics on entrepreneurship, startup funding, and a ton of different things as well. So uh, make sure you get excited for this one. And thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of Next Level Minds. John, I just want to thank you for having me in your studio and really taking the time to uh, be a guest on the Next Level Minds podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Of course, of course. So based on that brief introduction that I uh, gave the listeners, obviously you know yourself a lot better than I do. What do you want everyone out there to know about you? Wow. I don't know. One thing that I'd like for them to know about me, I think you did a good job covering, covering the bases. I think with me, um, I like to do lots of different things, mm-hmm. and and I think that's why I've been a career consultant because consulting lets you work in a lot of different industries with a lot of different people, a lot of different technologies, solving business problems. And at the end of the day, I think that's that's what drives me is is solving problems for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned you were a problem solver, and just on conversations that we have, I can tell you're very innovative. Can you walk us through how you grew up? I mean, were you always a problem solver? Where did you really begin this type of uh, innovation? Sure. So I, uh, I, I grew up in, in Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. I'm born in Alexandria and moved out to the suburbs uh, at a pretty young age. Um, I grew up in, in Ashburn, Virginia. And when I was in undergrad at George Mason, uh, that was a real interesting time to be in that part of the country. Uh, the dot-com craze mm-hmm. was going and AOL was headquartered in Ashburn at the time. Mm-hmm. So everybody who grew up in Northern Virginia knew somebody who was an AOL millionaire. There were, yeah, <laughs> AOL made thousands and thousands of millionaires. And so I think that that, uh, that probably colored some of my thinking and kind of drove me towards technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, at George Mason, I was studying accounting 
I thought I wanted to be an accountant like my father. And uh, as, I, as I saw what was happening in the IT industry, that became very interesting to me. And so I picked up another, another major uh, in the business school that they called Decision Sciences and Management Information Systems. And, uh, and, and that was enough to get me a, a job as a consultant at a company called Talon, which was where I really learned how to, how to do IT consulting, how to build software products. And, and how to really develop code. I was doing a lot of Java development and then kind of branched out in, into other programming languages. Mm, mm. So did you make that pivot of, of just adding a uh, different field of study kind of based on the dot-com bubble or were your parents or friends kind of pushing you to go that route or did you say you made that yourself? I, I would say that I'm, I made that decision kind of on my own. I don't think my parents pushed me in any direction. I think they just wanted me to finish school. Uh, I took six yeah. years uh, to get an <laughs> undergraduate degree and uh, not, not because of the two degrees, but more just because it, I, I just goofed off for a while. So I, I think there were a lot of different people who were telling me, you, you can't be an accountant with your personality. Mm. Um, I don't know that they would have said I should go into software development, but I think a lot of people were telling me to think about consulting rather than a career in, in accounting. Yeah. And at some point I just decided, I think I was working at a, as an accounting temp at a, uh, at a software development uh, consulting company called TechLaw, and they needed help with something that I happened to be learning in school. And so I went and did some software development for them. And once I figured this problem out for them, they said, you're not working in the accounting department anymore. And they moved me into IT. Um, so there were a whole lot of factors that were kind of pushing me in that direction. But you could, you could see when you go interview, mm -hmm. I, I would do the on-campus interviewing and it was literally 50% higher starting salaries on the software development side than it was on, wow. on the accounting side. So that it was, it was pretty clear wh where I needed to go. Yeah. <laughs> Did you uh, work work through school, or, or how did that really work to get some experience? So I worked in a retail setting. I worked at a couple different car stereo shops, mm -hmm. and then at some point, I decided to go work at a, a temp agency, um, and and they connected me to this company, Tech Law. And so I worked there for probably the last year and a half of my undergraduate uh, journey. And uh, I also had a job working for the school. Uh, the business school had set up a, a an office for me and two of my two two of my counterparts, and we just did all sorts of IT types of projects for the for the business school. Yeah, and then you joined uh, Amintra in two thousand three. Yeah. So after after I, I mentioned the Talon experience, yep. which was the first place that I worked, I worked there for about two years, and the dot com collapse started and mm. was well underway and I went through six rounds of layoffs and I made it out myself and um but but I had, I saw this startup it was called Amentra and they uh they really knew how to sell mm. and the company Talon where I was working wasn't really all that good at selling and I saw what they were doing at Amentra and thought wow I'd really like to learn from these folks. So I, uh, I left in at the beginning of 2003, March of 2003, and they were eight people. So I was employee, uh, number nine and wow. they had a really good culture. They, they were led by some really talented uh, people. Mike and Matt were the CEO and COO at, at the time. And, and I could just tell when I started talking to, to Mike, especially, which is who my, who was my boss. I, yeah. I just, I just knew I was going to learn a lot. And that was what was most important to me at that point in my career was what, what am I going to learn? Yeah. So, when you had these six layoffs, was there an uh, anxious feeling that you were experiencing or was it just like, hey, I'm going to get through this? Or what was really the mindset that you had during that time? 
Yeah, I was never worried for myself just because I, I, the vice president that I worked for gave me a heads up every single time and yeah. kind of told me right. who, who was going to go. So I wasn't nervous for myself. I think I was worried for the people around me. And it wasn't just our company. It wasn't because Talon was poorly run. It was it was the, the, the macro environment. Mm. You, you had uh, September 11th, you had the Enron scandal. Uh, there was just a lot going on at the time. And, and there was a, a, a pretty nasty recession that happened. And, and I think I was, uh, I was anxious more for the other people, but I, kn- I knew that my job was never in danger. And when you're in consulting, if you're on a project and billable, you're not going to get laid off because you, you're right. going to lose revenue. They only lay off the people that aren't on projects. And I mm-hmm. was never on the bench as they, as they call it for more than a week or two. So it wasn't an anxious time from, from my own perspective. Yeah. And you mentioned that, uh, when you first started looking for careers and expanding into different fields, one of the main attributes you were looking for is how good of a learning opportunity is mm-hmm. this? Would you uh, offer that advice to people who are looking for their first careers of just focus on the learning rather than, oh, I'm getting paid X amount more? Or? Yeah, that's that's the exact advice that I give to young people mm-hmm. is is really you need, to, you need two things out of your job. Um, you need to grow your skills and you need to grow your network. And as long as you grow those two things, the money will follow. Um, people who job hop for the next $2,000 to $5,000 more per year they may end up making more on a per year basis than somebody who mm-hmm. grows their skills and grows their network. But I've had a couple of different paydays where I, I guarantee you I make more in that one payday than those people will make in 30 years of their of their career hopping. And that's a direct result of learning skills, taking calculated risks, solving challenging problems, looking out for opportunities, and then building the network. And if you have skills in a network, that's how you find those those opportunities. Yeah, for sure. Why do you think there's uh, there seems to be a culture right now of the whole job hopping for two thousand dollars more, like you mentioned, rather than I'm going to learn as much as I can? Yeah, I, I think it's an easier way to go, and I think mm. it's a more concrete thing. I if you pay me five thousand dollars more per year, yeah, that's a hundred dollars more every week that I'm putting in my pocket. That's very tangible. Uh, th- I don't. Th- I think in general there's a people have a tendency to play the short game rather than the long game. And, and, and so it's not an easy thing to do to think long-term. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I think so few people uh, do it, but I do think that people understand the concept. Um, I, and it's why I, I have a, a podcast that's pretty similar to yours where I interview founders. And mm-hmm. cause, cause I think people need to hear these stories and understand, Hey, if you want to really be successful and happy, um, here's a path that you can take. I don't think starting a company is for everybody. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's for most people, um, but I think it's one path. I do think going and working for an earlier stage company with the founders where you're able to actually work with the founders is something that most people should try at some point in their life. But unfortunately, the older you get, the more responsibilities you have, the harder it is to do to do that type of thing for sure. Yeah, so would you suggest taking as many uh, calculated risks as you can before the age of 30 or, or what's really the advice there? Sure. I, and I don't know that it's 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 an age thing. I mean, yeah. I, I think I think if you've got a risk that that seems like a good one and that you think is it could be a good opportunity, you should you should think hard about it. Mm. And if you do run into those earlier in your career, it's a very, it's a much easier calculation, I think, whereas somebody who's maybe my, I'm 43. So somebody my age mm. who's got two kids and is thinking about paying for college and they've got a mortgage and they've got other things that they've yep. got to do, yep. it might be harder to take that risk. Now, the flip side is 
people, I see people all the time starting companies in their mid to late thirties and they've got more money, they've got more wisdom and they've got more of a network. And so they can be very successful. It's just sometimes harder to take those risks because there's, it's more than just yourself that, that you're put that you're putting at risk. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. So after uh, Amintra, you, uh, you spent two years doing consulting for Red Hat then, or really how can you walk us through that process? Sure. So, so Mentro was a consulting company, about 130 yeah. people at the time that we sold to Red Hat. And we sold in 2008. Mm. Um, we were going to raise money from, uh, we were looking at raising money from a couple of different private equity funds and had some really good offers and some interesting uh, opportunities. And Red Hat found out about it. We were their biggest partner. They had acquired a company called JBoss, which was a middleware platform that they were having trouble selling. And we were JBoss's biggest partner. Red Hat hears that we're raising money, and they said, "Why don't we just buy you?" And we, we, we. It was a real gut check for the entire executive team, but we mm. decided it was the right way to go because the financial crisis was was flaring up. And Red Hat actually did pretty well during that time, and was a very well-run company financially. They had no debt. They had about a billion in, in liquid assets, and so we felt like that was a better place to be and a better exit for us rather than raising some private equity money and trying to really blow it up and then sell it. Um, so Red Hat buys us and wanted the the consult the con we were a consulting company and sell con consultatively as a result. And that's the kind of sale that, that JBoss needed was the, mm. somebody who could come in and really explain how this middleware works and how you build applications on it. And so um, they already had an existing team of consultants. I think there were about 18 people in North America. Yeah. And, uh, and my task, um, I was running the day-to-day -day of Amentra by then. And, and then Red Hat Metalware Consulting was to figure out how do we work these two teams together. When you do services as a services company, standalone, like a mentor was prior to the acquisition, you're looking at a business problem and coming up with the best solution. And the product may happen to be JBoss. It may be an IBM product. It may be, yeah. may be a, a Microsoft product. When you're owned by Red Hat and when you are Red Hat, the solution is Red Hat. Mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty simple. And so they, their team of 18 consultants was much more focused on the nuts and bolts of the Red Hat technology. And our team was broader and more more kind of problem solvers. And so my job was to figure out, okay, how do we merge these two teams together and then position it to grow? Um, because they, and now if you look, I think that team is probably 700 people in North America at this wow. point. Wow. Yeah. And was it uh, just you yourself kind of come up with these solutions or did you have a team of consultants that were working on that? Yeah. So, so we had a whole team that, that, that was working on it. I was, I was in charge of the team. And what I did was I, I divided the country into three regions, mm -hmm. uh, the central, the east, and the west coast. And I had one person running each of those regions. And then east coast was by far the biggest presence because that's where Amentra historically was. And so there were probably three or four people who reported in to that person who was running the, the east coast. But it's, I mean, anytime you do something like that, it's definitely not one person. I did a lot of flying and oversaw the the integration, but there were, there were probably 20 people at the end of the day that were really responsible for for putting that that did a lot of the work putting that all all together yeah did you feel uh, a lot of pressure having a task that big just kind of thrown under you or uh you know i don't i, don't, I didn't look at it that way because yeah. we had such a good team and, and red hat is such a great company and, and was growing very fast at the time uh, they've recently been acquired by ibm but I, I don't i don't think i felt any real pressure there was nobody uh, there was pressure every quarter to get deals done and, and we, we were doing some, some really big deals. And so I, I yeah. it was more 
pressure like that. But the task of integrating when you've got a good team is is not really all that stressful, frankly. Yeah. So do you have any uh, advice out there um, for, for anyone that may be dealing with some pressure in their career? For myself, for example, I'm uh, just now getting to the point where I'm taking on a significant uh, amount more of uh, responsibility within mm-hmm. my role. And it's, uh, you know, I've never really had that before. So it's every day like, oh my gosh, like what if I mess this up? And I know a lot yeah. of my listeners out there also are kind of getting to that phase in their career. So how do you really deal with that internal pressure that happens? Sure. So, so my first advice to people is to just take a deep breath yeah. <laughs> and, and remember that it's only work and mm. mistakes. Hopefully you're in an environment where mistakes aren't penalized. Um, I, I, I'm a big believer that it's okay to make mistakes. I think if you're not making mistakes, you're not taking big enough, um, taking on big enough challenges. You need to learn from your mistakes and not make the same mistake twice. But I think that's the first thing that I tell people is just remember this is, you, you get do-overs, you can make mistakes, mm-hmm. make sure you learn from them. Um, but, but more than anything, I think you need to be able to communicate up, you need to be able to communicate down and you need to be able to communicate sideways and you need to manage expectations. And if you, if, if you're in a pressure situation, identify why it is that you're feeling pressure mm. and figure out, is it cause it's truly the end of the quarter and I've just got to get this deal done. Well, there's going to be pressure because we need to get hit our quarterly numbers. Um, if you're feeling pressure because somebody doesn't like you or you're feeling pressure because you're, you don't get along with somebody, those are things I think you need to confront them and bring it up and not hide from it and don't hide behind passive aggressive techniques. I try to be, you know, some people call it genuine, but I think you need to be transparent with people. Mm-hmm. You need to be honest with people and you need to hold them to that standard and you need to set that expectation that that's, that's how you want to work. But that may not be why you're feeling pressure. You may be feeling pressure because you you think you're in over your head and that's a good place to be. You should always be in over your head. You're not, you're not growing if you're not in over your head. Mm. Um, if, if you're completely comfortable, you're not moving forward. It doesn't, success doesn't come from doing the easy things. And, and it's nice to have periods where you're comfortable and like, okay, I've got everything under control, but growth happens when you challenge yourself and when you challenge the people around you. And so if you're feeling pressure because you're growing, I would say, learn to channel that pressure, thrive off of it. And, you know, I don't have a good technique or easy way to do that, but if you can, if you can reframe it and look at it that way and say, no, this is part of the growth process. I think you start to understand that that pressure is a good thing. And, and, and that, you know, that makes it a lot easier to deal with that pressure. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I feel like, uh, unfortunately, sometimes in corporate America, sometimes the communication can be off between the uh, executive leadership, the VPs all the way down to kind of the middle level management. Um, but then again, like you mentioned, I think just properly communicating yourself to everyone around, you can really help kind of separate yourself apart and take some pressure off. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I know you touched on this earlier um, with entrepreneurship um, and, and you touched on that. Uh, you don't think it's for everyone. Um, I have a lot of people out there that, that listen and, and myself who r- really aspire to start a company one day. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you really pinpoint those traits in yourself at a, at an early age to say like, okay, I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know that there's anything, any one thing. I, I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot who've been successful, mm-hmm. a lot who are back in corporate careers now and, and didn't have success, but, but showed a lot of this, the traits that do drive success. And I would say if there's one common theme um, in, in most of them, it's just a confidence, not a cockiness, not, a, not an arrogance, but a confidence in themselves. And that sometimes takes a little bit of time to develop. Um, 
but I think the the, the confidence and because you're going to make a lot of decisions and you're going to fuck a lot of them up, frankly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and it takes a real confidence in order to be able to do that and to keep keep coming back to it. And um, but but the other thing that I think I commonly see, but it's probably less common than the confidence, is the ability to to stick with something even though you're you're failing, mm. but then be able to pivot and and be able to kind of stick the landing of don't stay at something for too long that isn't going to be successful. Don't get so tied to that thing that you're that you don't see the real opportunity and make the pivot or or make the change to 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 drive success. And I think that's probably the hardest part of entrepreneurship is sometimes people get so wound up in their product that they don't realize the market has already passed them and mm-hmm. they won't change and they won't admit that they're wrong and they won't admit, you know, it isn't that they won't admit that they're wrong. It's just that they are so focused on it. But it's hard because you need that focus and you need to not give up at the first sign of a challenge, but you, you, you can get stuck doing it. And that's, that's the, I think the hardest part, one of the hardest parts about being an entrepreneur is, is figuring out kind of that balance between sticking with something, but not sticking with it for, for too long. Yeah. Do you think that people around you, uh, you should really try to surround yourself with friends and family who are supporting you through your failures or like what advice out there do you have for people who just want to go at it solo? Cause I know a lot of people like that too. Sure. So, I mean, I think that it, there, there are a lot of great entrepreneurs who do it on their own mm-hmm. without a real partner, but most people who drive to massive levels of success are going to have to have people around them who, who, who are bought in maybe with ownership or mm-hmm. just bought in and feel like they're part of that, that founding team or decision-making team. Um, if you don't have those people around you, I would say, try to find those people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even if you end up being the only person making decisions on your team, um, you're going to want some advisors around you who can support you. Having your friends around you is okay, but you're going to end up in an echo chamber. And I think you need some people from outside your inner circle, your normal inner circle or your personal inner circle. It's not to say you don't want people who are, you know, your day one friends. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but but you're going to have a group think, you're going to have an echo chamber and you need a diversity of of ideas. You need people who will question you. You need people who will make you think about things differently. Mm-hmm. And it's rare that you're going to find that from your, your your true inner circle, especially when you're younger. When you get a little older, I've got five or six distinct groups of friends and I can see different traits a- across those different groups. Uh, but when I was younger, if I had just surrounded myself with my own people, you know, I would have had a very one-sided uh, view of the world. Yeah, of course. So with uh, NextGrid, I know you started that mm-hmm. after consulting for Red Hat, right? That's correct. Okay, so um, I know you went with NextGrid and then you launched Reward Summit, correct? Yeah, so NextGrid was, um, I was the COO. Okay. Um, I've, I've, I've known the CEO for a while and he had invented some technology and wanted to commercialize it. And so he, he asked me a year before I ended up leaving Red Hat to join him in starting it. And he, at that point, was just tinkering with some technology and then about six months later, he had won a contract um, and he had to put a company together at that point. Oh, wow. And then he called you. <laughs> he, he called me and said, hey, you know, we've been talking for a while. And he knew that I, I had work to do at Red Hat still um, and, and a couple of earn out payments to, to, to earn. Um, mm-hmm. But he said, hey, I just want a deal. I need to go raise some money. I need, I need to put a team together. Like, can you come now? And I said, well, let me, let me invest some money. Let me get some investors together. And... Um, let me help you with that. And then, you know, I'll join you in, in six months. 
Um, and, and in fact, I was planning on joining a little later. I wanted to stick around for, for three years initially. Mm. And at the end of two years, I ended up uh, joining him because he had won another contract. And it was just, it was very clear that they needed a COO at the time. And so, so that was how we started, started NextGrid. I spent about two and a half years putting together a supply chain because NextGrid manufactures equipment mm. um, and does software. So I helped put a software team together. I helped put the initial supply chain together. Um, and then uh, worked with putting a sales team together. And, uh, and and I just realized that it wasn't an industry that I wanted to be in for what I felt were going to be the 10 most, pr- you know, 10, 15 most productive years of my, of my career. So NextGrid's still going strong. Um, they're chasing a game-changing big contract. Um, mm. I, I, I talk with the CEO fairly regularly. I'm still a shareholder. I sit in on the investor meetings. Um, but it, was, it just wasn't going to be where I wanted to spend you know, spend my, you know, my the second half of my thirties and, and my forties, which is where I feel like you're, you're kind of at your most productive in, in, in many cases. And so, so I moved on, um, did some independent contracting for a little bit and then came up with this idea for, for a reward summit that, that you've talked about. Yeah. So when, uh, when you first went with uh, next grade, you were early thirties or mid thirties, you said? Yeah, that was 2010, so I would have been 34. Okay, yeah. so a follow-up question on next grid, and then I want to move on to reward summit. Sure. Um, you mentioned pulling together investors, um, and to be honest, you said that kind of casually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's just a really next-level topic that we could probably have 15 episodes on. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just in a couple minutes, I mean, anyone out there who's making some traction in their company but wants to, you know, pull together investors casually, like you mentioned. <laughs> Uh, what's some really like steps or things that they can do to put themselves forward? Yeah, that's that, that's a great question, and there's no one size fits all answer mm-hmm. here. I'll, I'll tell you first what it meant in 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 my case. Um, he had a couple of investors he was already talking to, um, and if for anybody who's and we weren't we're not talking about trivial money. It wasn't a big round. It was he needed about a million dollars to to launch it. Yeah, um, and he had a very very real needs for a million dollars of capital. I mean he. There was R and D that needed to be done. Um, there's just uh, in manufacturing the hardware. There's some external costs where you're going to ha- bring in people to come in and help you design the hardware. Um, he needed to develop a bunch of software, and and so there there were very real costs. And then when you get your first deal, you, there's working capital requirements. Mm. You got to buy you got to buy all of the different pieces and parts that are going to get assembled. Um, and there's lead times, and then you assemble them and that may be a couple of months assembling 10,000 electric meters or 10,000 um, units, so to speak. And then you're going to deliver them and send an invoice to the, to the utility company. And then they're going to pay you 30 days later. So mm. you've got to cover that work in capital, even once you've done all of the upfront R and D, but he knew that he needed about a million dollars to get, get things moving. But he also had about a million dollars of contracts in hand. So for him, raising money is different than for somebody who's saying, I've got an idea and I want to commercialize it. For what he was trying to do, he could have raised money from other groups, but it takes time. Um, Even though he had a good business model, you've got to put a pitch deck together. You've got to convince people. You've got to come up with terms. It's just a a time-consuming process. And so I said, let me see if I can get a group of investors together because two years prior we'd sold a mentor to Red Hat. And so we mm. knew some people who had, had some individuals who had money and had expressed an interest in investing in, in other things. So generally when you make other people money, 
there's just an unwritten rule that the next time you go to make money, they'll they'll invest. Yeah, in they'll you. help you out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so it was it was pretty easy for me to go. I, I went to um, the founders of Amentra because I'd known that they'd made a good chunk of money. Um, I, we went to the bankers who uh, who did the deal because they had mentioned if you ever come across something or you want to do you know your next thing let us know we'd like to take a look and in fact the the founder of that investment bank that sold us has now invested in two yeah two companies i've been involved with and mm. and two or three that the founder of amentral was involved with and so when you're raising money if you've got a network of people that you already know whether you're raising $100,000 to do an mvp or a minimum viable product or as in our case, it's, hey, we've developed, we've invented the technology already. We've got a team. We just need to grow the team before we're going to start driving revenue. Um, always going to your own network is going to be faster. And even going to your own network still takes time. I think it took us about three months to get that deal done with people that all knew each other. Mm -hmm. And and that's going to be generally the best case scenario. Usually you're going to spend more like six months, nine months um, from start to finish before before you start the process of raising money. And and, and between then and when the wires start coming in, it's, it's usually a pretty long process. Yeah. And I think that really goes back to uh, early on in your career when you ask yourself two questions, how can I learn the most and how can I expand my network? And I feel if you didn't take those steps, it might not have been as easy to acquire the funding. But you know, you, you did the initiatives to establish that network at a young age. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say go find the network, mm. build your network for real specific things. I'm a big believer in building the network. You, 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 you have to, you have to explore, you have to meet people. You don't necessarily know why you're meeting them or what you want from them. Um, and, and in fact, you need to be thinking about how do you help them? And if you mm. do that, you'll start to round out your network to people. These are people who will invest money. These are people who, you know, may, may be a good salesperson in the future, or this may be someone who hires me, or they may start a company and I get to go help them. You, you really never know. And I think that's important when you're building your network is not to try and focus on specific things and have a specific ask. Then it just looks like you're, you're, you're looking out for something and you're going to get a quick reputation for, for being that type of person. You really need to be the type of person who you network because you want to help other people and you understand you're playing the long game and they're going to help you. But but the way we built Level was completely off of mine and, and my partner, which Level's the, the the biggest success of any of the companies that I've been involved with for sure. And and Chris and I both, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it later yeah. on in the interview. But we both always were those type of networkers. And if you look at how we built the team so quickly, it was largely tapping into our networks. And the beauty of that is once you once you bring in great people from your network, you then expand into their networks as well. Mm. And so now the way that Level's growing and continuing to grow to this day, there are people that neither Chris nor I directly know because there's so many other great people that are decision wow. makers in that company who are bringing in people from their network and it just mm. starts to multiply over time. Yeah, and I think another follow-up on, uh, on the network is uh, really I try to never burn any bridges in business or personal relationships because you never know when you might run into them again. Um, it's very true. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny because sometimes you easily just want to cut them off or something, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not going to cut out well for you in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. You, you definitely never, never want to burn a bridge. Some people are just assholes and the bridge right. needs to be burned, but, but the, my experience is most people, even if they do 
things that you perceive as bad, there's two sides to the story. And yeah. I try to keep that in mind with, with, with people for sure. Yeah. So uh, Reward Summit, I know you were able to successfully launch on the App Store. Was that correct? Yeah, that's okay. That's correct. So Reward Summit was an idea that I had. I was, um, I was, my brother was getting married. We were at a bachelor party and I went to pay for a pretty big tab um, for, for uh, a bar tab one night. And I'd gotten a new credit card and I couldn't remember which one was 5% cash back on, mm. on restaurants. And, uh, and I was talking with my dad and I'm like, this is stupid. Like, why isn't there an app that figures this out for you? And my dad was like, well, if only you knew somebody who knew how to build an app. And at that point it was game on, like he threw the gauntlet down. And you're like, all right. <laughs> so, so, so I start, I, I knew how to build an app and I knew roughly how I would architect this thing. Um, and I started thinking through it and I went to one of my friends, um, from grad school. I went to, to, to Duke, to the Fuqua, um, uh, MBA program, uh, weekend executive MBA program. And I had started a company, I'd built an app for a friend of mine and we'd put a little bit of money into it and we were still running with it. We'd launched it and we were, we were, it was starting to make a little bit of money. And we, I, I didn't, think I wanted to do this app full time. And he was a very successful investment banker and he wasn't going to do it. And so we were already kind of thinking about crap. Do we go put more money in and go hire somebody? Mm. Well, I call him and I'm like, Hey, I just had this idea. What if I built an app that does this? It figures out which credit card to use for depending on where you are. And, and we talked for like a two, two hours on the drive back from Savannah. And he was like, you know what? Like why don't you, um, why don't we shut down the gold mine was what we called this other app. And he said, I think this is a much better idea. Um, he's like, I can put, I'll, I'll get some, some of the guys from the investment bank together. Why don't you go find somebody to help you build this, you know? And so, so we did, we, we, I put some money in, um, and, and my friend Greg put money in and a couple of his coworkers. So we had about a hundred thousand dollars to go just build this app that, yeah. that I had the idea for somewhere along the way, I get introduced to Chris Hart, who's had been, had spent 15 years, um, with, with bank of America and is just a brilliant technologist. And mm. uh, right away we hit it off and, um, he got the idea right away. He said, here's how we can monetize it. And, you know, he, he understood the industry, but he was also better at tech than, than I was. And we started developing it the night we met. And within a, w a month we had a version of the product working and, and then it, it wasn't very good, but it was, it was yeah. working. And then, um, then we raised a little bit. Well, actually I, I said, we raised a hundred grand. We, we raised 30 up front and then we raised another hundred to mm. go actually build it. And, and we did, we, uh, a year later, we, we got it featured on the app stores, the number one finance category app. And they kept it up for a couple wow. of weeks and we had tens of thousands of users. It wasn't making much money. It was making a little bit of money. Definitely not enough to, um, you know, definitely not enough to pay the investors or anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but we we learned a whole lot in that process about user experience design. We learned a lot about payments. We we just mm. really and we learned about um, modern kind of cloud architectures, which were just starting to uh, gain mind share in 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 the enterprise. But but we never figured out how to make any real money with it. Yeah. So when you thought of this idea and you started implementing it. Were you uh, also working somewhere else, or was it just solely focused on uh, Reward Summit? So I was doing, um, I was an independent contractor mm. too. I had some friends that I used to work for at Talon who had started their own company, and they were doing one real specific thing in IT, and they wanted to go broader into application development. And so I'd help them build a couple of relationships. Um, I was doing some billing for them um, for, for a couple companies. 
and uh and but but they when they saw the the launch and they saw the blog posts about chris and me and they knew that what kind of hours we were working to keep the lights on on this thing yeah they were like we don't want to do this business yep. anymore we're shutting it down and i said well do you mind if i take over the business mm. and they said yeah absolutely you know we're, we're fine doing that and we wish you well and uh so around that same time chris was doing the same thing with bank of america he was an independent contractor and they had the same reaction they were like you cannot work here like you you know just it's a conflict of interest mm. and so we both were kind of shown the door on the same day and i said well you know my my friends over at cld is the name of the company said i could have this business why don't we just do that we'll do it for a week every month we'll go bill somewhere we bill you know two hundred dollars an hour you make eight thousand dollars each. That's enough to pay our bills, right? And then, and then, and then, uh, and, and then we can work on reward summit the rest of the time. And so that that's what we did for for about six months. Yeah. So it sounds like through all this building, I mean, you were working a ton, putting a, putting a significant amount of hours in. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was four hours of sleep tops wow. at the time. And <laughs> what was really your your motivation through this process? Uh, you know. I think having seen success at Amentra, we, we'd seen some success at, at NextGrid as well. Um, I, I think that feeling of success and of doing something on your own is, is a real powerful motivator for me. I think just knowing that I'm getting something done and learning things is very mm -hmm. motivating. And so that motivated me. I think with Reward Summit, it went to the next level because we were now being seen by tens of thousands of people. And I could see them through my da analytics dashboard in real time, what they're doing wow. um, with our product. And so, and I'd see people opening up the app in Singapore and a little, you know, dot opens up on the Google, Google analytics dashboard in Singapore. And you're like, wow, this is crazy. Uh, and that's very motivating as well. And I think getting the feedback from customers and, and we had a competitor and I think that motivated me. Mm. Um, you know, I think all of those things uh, are what were motivating me kind of kind of at the time. I, I, ultimately, you want to have success, but success has a lot of different meanings. I think having users using your product or yeah. <laughs> seeing them and, and and knowing that people are out there using something that, that you were part of creating is, is just hugely motivating for me. Yeah. What did you do? Uh, I know you mentioned you were getting around four hours of sleep a night. What did you do? And I'm sure you had these where you just did not feel like getting up in the morning and conquering the day or did you, did, were you rare and never had any? I, I almost days? never have those kind of days. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think maybe when I'm sick, um, uh -huh. I, I feel like that. And, uh, and look, when I do have that kind of day, um, I, I had one recently where my, I, I twisted my ankle and I just, I, I did not, I, I, I couldn't move. Right. And so right. I said, I'm just taking the day off. I'm just going to sit here and lay down and heal myself. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so, so when I do have those days where I'm like, okay, I can't, I cannot overcome this. I just, I address it. I do whatever I need to do to, to get through it. But I cut off the other thing. You know, I, I, I'm not working today. I'm mm -hmm. just not doing it. When I, when I'm overwhelmed, I just, I've got to walk away from this and, and I've got to recover from it. And, and cause you can't do both. But luckily I'm the type where I'm pretty optimistic by nature. Um, and also luckily I've, I've just got a good, good source of energy and a pretty good motor and I'm pretty healthy. So I, I, it's very rare that I do have those days, luckily. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, this is really a broad question, but you know, I'm gonna give you the opportunity to hone in on it. Uh, with all this building, you know, I want to touch on this before we move to uh, level, um, what are some failures you may have had along this process that you wouldn't mind sharing? Sure. Yeah. There've been plenty of failures. I mentioned the goal mine. We, Mm. We, we built this product and um, we got it on onto the app store and we had people 
using it. And it was a product where you could create challenges for yourself or for others. And we had four or five categories. It could be quitting smoking, taking a class, losing weight, finishing a workout program. But the idea was to set a goal. And then we created a social, um, uh, you, you could send out email invites or you could connect with your friends on Facebook or your followers on Twitter. And then we created a feed of people who could give you encouragement along mm. the way. And then you could take pictures and upload them and people could literally make a contribution to you and say, if you hit this goal, I'm going to give you $20 or $50 oh, wow. or $100. And um, and I thought it was a great idea. I still think it's a very good idea. We yeah. built it. It looked great. Um, we... Uh, and we and we we built the interface with a company called WePay, which was, is a PayPal competitor, mm. and uh, and it, it was really cool seeing. Literally, we had thousands and thousands of images of people that we didn't even know <laughs> who were like posting pictures and chat, and you could see people losing weight, yeah. you know, through the thing. And it was it was really cool, but it was a failure ultimately because we decided to go after Reward Summit. Um, mm. Prior to that, I had spent I'd had a side project that I would always work on um, through the elementary years, and it, I called it Fit Tracker and. It was, a, it was a fitness tracking application um, for P90X workouts or for running, uh, keeping track of what shoes you're wearing so that you know when to buy new shoes. And it was had all sorts of features, but I never never commercialized it, never um, never really figured out how to do anything with it. it. It literally was just how I learned about seven or eight different technologies. But I failed to even create a final version of the product and get it in front of one customer. <laughs> yeah. But the reason I finally gave up on that was the goal mine came along and I repurposed everything from fit tracker into the goal mine, but neither of those turned into any kind of commercial success and reward summit was the same way. We never, mm -hmm. we maybe made, I don't know, $2,000 of revenue throughout the life of this thing. And, and myself and other investors probably put $150,000 or $200,000 into it. And, and to only make two or three thousand dollars of revenue, that's that's a failure by by any any stretch. Yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> um, and, and 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 it was funny because and but then we, you could argue that level would have never happened without those three. So were they failures? Not really. They mm. were failures in one perspective. But if you learn from your mistakes. I don't know that you call that. I don't know that I look back at that and say, "Wow, that was a that was a failure. I wasted my time doing that." Yeah. What are some steps out there people could take of uh, you know if they have a failure to really learn from their mistakes and really not just get hung uh, up on everything that's happening? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I think you've got to be able to be honest with yourself, and you've mm -hmm. got to ask yourself, "Why did I fail? And what could I have done differently to to not fail?" And if the if the only answer you come up with is not take a risk, then I wouldn't dwell on it too much because um, you're, you're going to fail at things, right? right so right. so I think the, the biggest key when you're looking at your failures is not to let the failure paralyze you from acting again, mm. but to figure out what were the mistakes I made and were there things that if I had done them differently, I might have had a better outcome. That's And it's hard to do that because most of us have a tendency to get defensive even when we're looking at ourselves and try and say, well... I'm going to make excuses and that's where the confidence comes in and the maturity and the ability to, to look at yourself. And, and I think if you can look at your failures and say, be very, very honest about it, that's you're, you're going to become wildly successful if you, if you can do that in a very honest way. Cause most people have 
a lot more talent than what they're actually able to 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 achieve it's just that they're afraid to be honest with themselves mm. and to look at things objectively and say yeah i really fucked up i really could have done that a whole lot better it's, it's just not something that's a natural movement for for most people yeah i've uh, i've been doing this every uh, every night in my journal i write down uh, one way i could get better uh, from the next day. Cause I, I mean, I fail every day at, at, at small things. I'm sure yeah. you fail at some things too. <laughs> oh, tons of things. <laughs> um, so I write down, you know, what did I do today? What did I fail at? And how can I get better from them? Yeah. And I think it's those micro steps that end up lead to uh, macro success down the road. A absolutely. Yeah. Do you spend any time, uh, like on mindset or gratitude journals or anything like that in your busy day? Like, do you think that really shapes it? I, I don't have a gratitude journal, but I try to think about what I'm grateful for. Yeah. Um, very actively. I try to meditate. Um, and when I do meditate, once I get my mind clear, that's one of the things that I like to do is just think about what I'm grateful for, who I'm happy for, who, who, who in my life is making it better. I think when I do take the time to do that, it's, it's uh, very, very, uh, rewarding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I don't have a, an actual journal. I occasionally keep a fitness journal where I'll just keep track of, how much running I do or how much uh, time I'm spending in the CrossFit gym or doing yoga or in the sauna or doing all these healthy things, how much time I'm spending meditating or, or doing breathing exercises or float. I'm doing a float spa today. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, and, and from time to time, I feel like I need to track that because I start to lose track of those things in my life. And I start to spend too much time on work and getting too into my, you know, what I'm doing um, with work or with investing or the mm. advisory work that I do. Uh, but right now I'm at a point where I feel like I'm in a pretty, pretty good balance. And so I haven't been journalizing that stuff as much. Yeah. And uh, you're pretty big on fitness too, right? That's correct. Yeah. Do you think that's a must have for just any type of success to balance that with your hard work? I, I think you need to have something that's, yeah. that's an outlet. And for me, it's definitely exercise is the first thing I do every day. So it mm -hmm. can't be taken away from me. Mm -hmm. um, if I did it at 5 PM, which is probably a more natural time and probably when I would get more results from it. The problem would be that it would be very easy to get something scheduled during it and it mm. moves away. So I'm adamant about um, the days that I do exercise, I'm going to do it first thing in the morning. Um, but but look, it's I, I think everybody could benefit from that. But whether it's a CrossFit workout like I like or a session in the yoga studio or going for a run or even going for a walk. I mean, I think I think all of that is is very healthy. But for some people, they physically they just don't like it. I would say you should have something else that you're that you're committed to that get that brings balance to your life. Yeah, that's funny. So I, I try to lift weights five times a week, mm -hmm. but one thing I just hate doing, and my girlfriend always gives me crap for it, is I hate running. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, something I'm really trying to get better at. Okay. At least two or three miles a week, but struggle. Have, have you ever um, tried um, like uh, just doing wind sprints or? No, I haven't. Okay, so it's, I mean, you, you can do it in whatever format you want. The, my favorite is a protocol called Tabata. And yeah. it's, um, you do, and you can do Tabata with anything, back squats, whatever you want. It's, you go as hard as you can for 20 seconds, take, a ten, take 10 seconds to recover, which if you do go truly 100%, you're not going to recover fully. Mm. Then you do another 20 seconds, another 10, and you, you repeat that for four minutes. So you do eight, eight times 20 seconds. So mm. it's 160 seconds of work. And they've actually found that it burns more calories through the day than running for uh, six miles. Um, oh, wow. And so it's, you, you, and you, you build an amazing amount of VO2 max or aerobic capacity, but you get it over with very quickly. And so if you don't like running four or five, like for me to get a good run in, it needs to be five or six miles to really get anything out of it. And that's just a long commitment and mm -hmm. I get bored and it wears my knees down. So when I do 
run, I prefer to do the, the Tabata protocol, but especially if you can do it like on hills, it's it's just mm. a really, really good workout. And you said you could do it with weights too, or? You, you can do, you could do Tabata with pull-ups, you can okay. do back squats, any weights that you want, any type of workout that you're doing. If you do 20 seconds followed by 10 seconds of rest and do it for eight minutes, that's called Tabata. And it was a, a, a running coach in Japan. Um, he, he literally tried all sorts of different intervals and he came up with that as the, the most absolute efficient protocol for building aerobic lung capacity and, and building, um, building um, bursts of strength. He felt like it was the, the biggest bang for your buck that you could possibly get. I think if you, I've experimented with 10 seconds and then 20 seconds of rest yeah. or 20 seconds in a minute. You really, if you're doing a sprint, you really need five to one um, rest uh, to rest to mm -hmm. work to in order to actually recover um and there's something about just taking that short 10 seconds that just really 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 get, makes your exercise very very efficient yeah i'm gonna take a mental note of that because uh i don't know about you but i love a nice cigar yeah uh, so i need to increase that lung capacity <laughs> on my workouts for sure <laughs> i do like a good cigar actually yeah yeah so uh i would say we do one right now but it's kind of in in the morning on sunday so yeah well, well at least we're drinking bourbon so that's good <laughs> Of course, of course. So, um, with Reward Summit, I know you uh, you mentioned that you pivoted that and uh, you started a service based IT consulting firm level. Mm -hmm. um, and I touched on this earlier, growing that to two hundred people, ten mm -hmm. different offices, four different continents. Um, can you kind of touch on what level is, how you grew it, etc.? Sure. So, so level was very similar to what a mentor was, which is we we would develop software and we develop software for other companies. Um, it started out as Chris and I going and, and helping out. Um, I think McDonald's was one of our first clients. American Airlines was a very early one. Uh, but we would go in, and in those days, we would just go in for a week or two. They'd, they'd bought a piece of software, and we partnered with the, the software company. It was called Pivotal. And they would bring us in for comp big clients of theirs who had bought the software but were struggling to figure out how to do something with mm. it. And so we would be very uh, hands-on um, helping them out with architecture, helping them out with writing code, helping them out with code reviews, helping them figure out how to replace whatever piece of software they were looking to replace. Uh, we, I mentioned before, we did that for about six months before we shut Reward Summit down and focused completely on Level. And we weren't calling it Level at the time, it was called Lata Partners. And, um, and we went and we hired our first employee because we had so much work at the time that just Chris and I could no longer do the work. So we mm -hmm. hired a guy named Sean Shealy who had worked uh, at Amentra, um, and then had gone on to work at Bank of America. So I came from the Amentra world. Chris came from the Bank of America world, and Sean came from both. He, mm. he had done both. And then we hired another guy who had worked for me at Amentra and then worked for me at NextGrid um, named Thomas McClure. And so there were four of us that really were the company at that point. And we were doing software development for companies. Um, I mean, HD Supply was a very early client of ours. Um, and, and really, we were just building software for companies who couldn't figure it out on their own. How, how did you help. get, uh, sorry, I mean to cut you off there. How did you uh, generate your first customers? Because I know you mentioned McDonald's was one. HD yeah, so that was, all, that was all a company called Pivotal okay, um, that was okay. spun out of VMware. And they had a series of products. And, and I had a lot of knowledge about those products. And Chris had knowledge of some of their products, but he ramped up very quickly on the ones that he had not worked with. And so we were really legitimate experts in a handful of technologies. There's a suite of um, open source tools that came from a company called Spring Source. And, um, and, and, I, and I mentioned Fit Tracker, the, the fitness app mm. that I had built. I had built a lot of that back end for that on Spring. And so I knew some really esoteric components of Spring. And so the VMware 
um, team that was the predecessor to Pivotal knew that I was an expert in these technologies and they'd call me from time to time and say, hey, can you go help American Airlines out there? They wanna use Spring MVC to do some, some, some uh, replace a few proprietary web services that they've developed. And uh, so that was really how, how we did our initial um, uh, client acquisition. What ended up happening was word started getting out in our circle that, that we were doing consulting work. Mm -hmm. And so we landed our first client that was non-pivotal related um, through a relationship in the, in the um, early stage community. Uh, a guy named Jim Van Fleet had done some advisory work to a company called SmartBIM. They wanted him to come in and rewrite some, a, bunch of, a bunch of things that they had and they, they weren't really sure how to build these things. And, uh, and they couldn't get the original contractors in, and he introduced us. And so SmartBIM became one of our very early clients. Ironically enough, Richard Sims was a guy that was running SmartBIM at the time, took a really big job at Siemens, and now Siemens is a big client of ours as oh, well, wow. doing, doing much, much bigger projects for Siemens because it's a much bigger bigger budget. But, um, but there were a lot of stories like that. And ultimately, the real game changer for us was a client called The Clearinghouse. They operate the ACH network here mm -hmm. in, in North America. Uh, on behalf of the banks, they're owned by 19 member banks, and the banks had asked them to build a mobile um, mobile tokenization vault, which is a key component of any mobile wallet. And uh, Chris and I knew a little bit about that, some of it through the reward summit days, but also Chris had worked on a couple projects for Bank of America, and we got a pro uh, we got a, a our first big contract was with the clearinghouse through Chris's network. They hired us to help. Um, design and ultimately architect the uh, this this mobile uh, tokenization vault, and in that process we met some people that we ended up hiring into level, and that really built the formation of our what we call our payments practice, which is where we're probably the most differentiated. Um, but but for the first year, all of our all of our lead generation was through through our network. But as you start to do good work for companies. People leave now. Someone left the clearinghouse and is at um, Associated Bank, and that's mm. a big client of Levels now. And so you you end up doing all sorts of business development just through your network. And I and my if I had to guess, you know, it's been a year since I was involved in the day to day at Level, but my guess is that still a quarter of the work that we're doing comes from somehow through that network. Eventually, we ended up hiring a sales guy. Um, just a really senior sales guy and we leveraged his network and his ability to sell. And then eventually we built a real marketing team and built an inside sales team and actually can generate business from people that we don't know. But it was it was years in, into the experiment that we were able to make those kinds of investments. Yeah. Uh, how excited were you when you got your first big customer for Level? <laughs> we, we were pretty excited. Yeah. It, you know, it's I, I think... For Chris, it was more exciting just because he had not been involved in something like this before. Mm. For me, I remembered the Amentra days, and so it was it was exciting. But but I remember we got our first uh, twenty five thousand dollar payment from a client. Yeah, and, and Chris was like, "Let's take a picture of it," and I'm like, "Nah, we'll we'll take a picture when it's a hundred thousand." And then uh, each one. Uh, you know, each one was, was exciting. I try not to celebrate too much and I try not to get too down on things. And I, pro I probably to probably to a fault, um, you know, I become almost robotic about it, but I'm a big believer that 
don't get too excited because when things are good, they're going to get bad. And don't get too down in the dumps because when they're bad, they're going to get better. And I try to mm-hmm. focus on that kind of that kind of middle road. But it's definitely exciting. I, I think the most exciting was when we made our first sale through the inside sales team because that's when I knew, even though it was a small deal, that's much more scalable and repeatable when mm-hmm. you can sell to somebody that you don't know and you can do it with somebody who isn't super senior and isn't a founder or isn't paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. That was probably the most exciting moment for me was when we were able to take, you know, an inside sales rep who's never going and visiting the client on site and generate business that way. Yeah, it sounds like once that happens, that's when really all the uh, parts are moving together, yeah. creating a fluid business operations. Um, so, so what year did Level start? Remind me of that again. We technically incorporated September of twenty thirteen. But uh, but we hired our first employee in April of 2014. That's when I think that it started. And then the following year, 2015, was when we rebranded it to Level. We raised some money from Matt, who was my was the CEO and founder of Amentra, and we also did NextGrid together. Um, or he was an investor in NextGrid as well. Um, I got him to come take a look at Lada Partners. By then we were 12 people and he said, I think you need to rebrand. I think you need to put some capital into this. And I think you need to really think a lot bigger than just being a Charlotte based company. Mm. And so those were the three founding points when we, when we incorporated, when we hired our first employee and then when we rebranded to level. Yeah. And then that's when you started expanding, creating an actual moving parts Yeah, 20, 2015, we did $4 million in revenue. Wow. Uh, we did a million in revenue in 2014, and then we did $4 million in 2015. Yeah, yeah. wow, wow. What uh, what steps can people take out there that are, uh, you know, they're past the idea phase, they've, they've got their actual company incorporated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you mentioned from 2013 to 15, you brought in another employee. Like, what mm-hmm. steps can the startup founders do to then eventually bring on a team? Well, I mean, I think you need to articulate maybe not a specific vision statement, but you need to mm. somehow articulate your vision for the company. You need to articulate what you're going to do. You should put together a plan. I read a book called Traction and they've got a framework called VTO. And we went through that in 2015 and it was very helpful for us. We defined our core values. We defined where we wanted to be in five years, where we wanted to be in three years and where we wanted to be in one year. And we made it very concrete what we thought we were going to do to get to each of those. We ended up blowing through every single plan that that we created. So the planning itself wasn't necessarily all that great, but I think defining what are the things that, that, that are who we are, the core values. And these are things that that never change. I mean, I think that that was, was very powerful for us. And I think that any founder who goes through that exercise will, will find it worthwhile. For me, putting together a pitch deck that you take to investors, even if it's investors that you know, which the first piece of money that we raised was from Matt, who I know very well, mm-hmm. uh, that was very informative, um, just articulating why somebody else should invest in you. Um, and then you end up using that with going out and hiring employees. If you can't tell an employee why they should come work for you, they aren't going to come work for you. A lot of mm. people always ask me, how did how did you guys build such a great team? And I tell them, well, first of all, Chris and I are both developers. So developers want to work with other talented developers. So mm-hmm. once, once you're able to get a, a handful of really talented people, and it doesn't just have to be developers, it could be anybody, but once you, once you start bringing in good people, that starts to snowball in a very good way. And, and along those lines, you need to do a good job of getting people out quickly who don't align with those core values. Um, but you also need to be very careful. We, we woke up one day and we were 40 people, all of them white guys. I mean, there were a couple of women in the company and we were very, um, we, we brought on a consultant and said, how do we, you know, how do we, why, why is it? Why, why are we doing this? And he said, well, where are you? 
I asked him, I said, look, we, we tried to hire, interview more minority candidates, people who don't look like everybody else in the company. And we yeah. only got two candidates and those two both had offers from Microsoft and Google. And he said, well, where are you recruiting? And I said, well, Duke, UNC, uh-huh. UVA. And he's like, huh, and you, and you didn't find black candidates there. I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was like, wow, why aren't, why aren't we interviewing there? So we, I mean, the, that that's the flip side is that by 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 tapping into your network you get mm. that effect that i talked about earlier where you end up uh, and, and it's hard if we were if we had grown to 200 people and still look like just a bunch of white guys all the same age wearing nice suits and you know, <laughs> it would have been it, that that was that would have been what we were forever but luckily we we realized that it, by the time we were 40 people and, and started to, to make make some changes there yeah yeah so um when you and chris really launched their uh launch level you know, you guys both have a, a significant amount of years of experience under your belt. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you like really offer up advice wise to uh, kind of entry level startup guys who who haven't had fifteen or twenty years of experience? Yes, get some people who do have some experience if you can. Yeah. Uh, make them advisors. Make get them to invest in your company. That that helps a lot. Um, people like myself and now Chris who have who have had success want want to be involved with other startups. Want to be involved with with talented people and want to help out and provide mentorship. So not necessarily that you have to hire people who have that experience, but get some, get them engaged somehow in your company. Um, there's, there's no, there's no substitute for the wisdom that, that you gain. You, you can be brilliant when, when in, and have the ability to, to de- develop something game changing when you're 20, but you just don't have those experiences and you need to find them somewhere for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so another question with level, how did you really, uh, grow this to, uh, you know, this top 6% fastest growing companies in America, uh, and additionally with $40 million in, uh, annual revenue, I mean, what was some just key steps you took there? So I mentioned before, uh, in, investing in, to me, the, the process of building a company, um, or any system is really identify what the biggest bottleneck is and chase that mercilessly just go after it and fix it and then be aware there's going to be a new bottleneck and mm. and if you just keep going after whatever the bottleneck is in your company um, i think that's a very effective way to go now we also had some strategy and some things that we thought about loosely but largely it was just okay what's the biggest problem that we have right now sometimes you find the biggest problem usually it's sales sales is the hardest thing to do um and, and luckily we were very, very good at selling. We just, Chris and I both know how to sell and we complement one another in terms of the things that we do. We were able to get a very talented salesperson named Dave Carr and he's just a master at selling. Um, and, and we took risks to do that. We, we were $4 million a year company and we had to give him, you know, I mean, he was making half a million a year at his, at his job at Red Hat at the time. And, and so you, you look and you say, do you pay somebody half a million a year when you're doing four million a year in sales? That's mm. not very smart. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if you want to get to 10 million a year in sales, that's what you do. So, so, so we invested um, very heavily in bringing on a rock star salesperson because that had become the bottleneck. We, Chris and I couldn't do 100% of the selling anymore mm. and, and keep growing it and keep running it. And we had Sean and we had Thomas and by then we had a, a lot of other really talented people, but we needed to get a salesperson. Um, then at times the bottleneck becomes recruiting. So, and by the way, it paid off. We did 10 million our third year. So we went from four to 10 wow. and it wasn't just bringing Dave on, but that, that was a, a big game changer for us for sure. Um, but, but I, I think seeking out those bottlenecks, whether it be now we need to invest in marketing at times you have to completely rip up your org chart and reorganize the entire company. And we've done that two or three times. We had times where we had to 
swap out the software that we were using or you have to move into a bigger office. There's just always something that you have to do in order to get the kind of growth that you want. For us also investing in in new offices was a was a big deal. Um, you know, you mentioned 10 offices. We we were uh, had people in in Europe, uh, Singapore, wow. uh, Australia, and we even had a team that wasn't level employees but that we that did quite a bit of our work down in Argentina. And so anytime uh, there, there were definitely times when the bottleneck was, well, we need to be in in the UK because we have a client, an mm. investment banking client who wants to sell us a large project, in, but we need people on the ground in the UK or we invested in in the capability in Singapore and in and Melbourne and uh, Sydney, Australia. Um, so, But there, was, there, there were all sorts of things we did along the way, but I don't think there was, one, once you get past bringing on Dave Carr, the, the salesperson that I talked about, or we brought on a guy named Scott Harkey who uh, launched our payment practice for us, Early early on, there were single things you could point to like that that were game changers. We brought on a guy named Brian DeStacy to lead recruiting, and he was able to just massively ramp the team at, at a time when when we were selling a lot. Um, but but what you get to a point where there's not any one thing that you're doing anymore. You're trying five or six things, and you don't know which thing's going to work. You know that if you if you try five things and two of them work, you're probably you know, you're probably doing pretty well yeah, and, yeah. and you're going to continue, continue to grow. But in the early going, there were definitely some big bets we took like Scott Harkey, Dave Carr, you know, the, 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 that I mentioned. Yeah. And then taking those calculated uh, risks that you mentioned prior. Yep. Yep. So when you were growing up, I mean, you've had some exponential success. Um, and first off, congratulations oh, on, on how everything's gone as well as what you've really built. Um, when you were growing up, especially in your kind of like mid twenties, did you have a vision of like, all right, this is what I want to be. This is how I'm going to get there. Or was it just like, I'm going to execute as hard as I can. Yeah, that's funny. Um, I, I think I did. My dad put my brother and I graduated the same. My, he's two years younger. He graduated. We both graduated in 2000 from undergrad. Mm -hmm. And my dad, you know, we, we were we were hanging out with the family after we had both after the two ceremonies in the same weekend. And um, he said, well, guys, how are you going to make a million dollars? And my brother said, well, I'm making this now and I'll get a 5% a year <laughs> increase. And by this point, I'll have made a million dollars. And he's like, okay, John. And I was like, well, I'm going to learn a lot at Talon and then I'm going to start my own consulting company. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was funny. Uh, he was like, yeah, that's the answer. He was like, and my brother is much smarter than I am graduated number one at UVA, but, but wow. he's, he just, that he, that he just thinks very differently about life than, than I do. So uh, I, I, I won't, I mean, I won't say that I had a vision for starting level, even though I made that comment. And I even remember working at one of the stereo shops and I met these guys who, had a consulting company and they were doing app dev and I didn't know that I wanted to do application development. And I remember going to my dad and saying, man, I met these two guys. I'm going to start a consulting company. You know, that's the thing to do. And uh, so, so I always knew that, I, but I don't, I don't, you know, I, I think it was once I went to a mentra and probably I'd started to think, well, maybe I'll build a product and that'll be what I do. But then I saw when I saw what Mike and Matt were doing with a mentor, I was like, yeah, actually I could do this. Like I'm, I'm going to keep learning from these guys. They really like know what they're doing and they're willing to teach me. And, uh, and so, so, yeah, I mean, I think it was a combination of things. The gentleman I mentioned that was the founder of NextGrid, the CEO of NextGrid, he, I had worked for him in the stereo shops before, and he had always really inspired me not necessarily to do take the exact path that I took, but just he had always he was always starting his own companies and, mm. and doing well with them, and then he'd sell them. Not not at the scale of what we did with Amentra or or any of these other things. Not not at the scale that we're doing with NextGrid, but he had always 
he'd start a stereo shop or he'd start a tinning company or he'd start a company selling cell phones or direct TV. And I think when you see enough of those, you start to realize like, wow, that's, that's the real way to do it is with my personality and, and the way that I like to take risks and the way that I like to learn. That's just a real natural, you know, it was just something that seemed, seemed obvious to me that I needed, needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that really goes back to that, uh, your environment, uh, growing up really does shape, uh, who you are in the future. Absolutely. Um, people around you, places you are, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what do you think, uh, is the biggest struggle that entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs, uh, really are facing currently? Um, so a lot of them think it's that they can't raise money. Um, and I don't think that's the problem. I mean, I think, I think the problem for most entrepreneur would be entrepreneurs is they're probably comfortable <laughs> in what mm-hmm. they're doing. And you're going to be very uncomfortable going out and starting on your own. And I think they wait for the perfect storm of things. Um, and, and, and then they think, okay, well, I need to go raise money because that's going to give me the comfort that I need to be able to go do this. And of course you can't raise money that way. It's impossible. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. And I, and I think that's the biggest thing that people struggle with. I think once they start, um, people struggle with prioritizing and working on what's important and not just urgent. Mm. Too too often, once you get started, you you fall into this trap where you're only working on the things that are urgent and you miss the things that are actually important. And that's what you really need to wake up every day and have a clarity of, okay, what's important that I do today? And not to say that you ignore the other things because you'll get tunnel vision and you won't find the, the best opportunities, but to have this just maniacal focus on what's the one thing I can improve today or what's the what are the two or three things that I need to get done today? I think that's the that's the the trap that a lot of people fall into once they actually get started and get going. And it's why they start to struggle to grow because they start wor- working on things that aren't important um, or they've got people around them. I, I heard something brilliant the other day. Um, there's a there's two types of people who energize a room. Mm. Some people energize it when they walk into the room and some people energize it when they walk out of the room. <laughs> and, and the key is to surround yourself with the people who energize it when they, when they walk into the room and get rid of the people as soon as you can that energize it when they walk out. And, and I think that's the other problem a lot of startups have is that as you grow the company, people who got you there aren't necessarily the people who will get you to the next place. And it's hard because you want to be loyal to those people, but you, mm. you ultimately have to get them out of the way somehow, whether it's forcing them out of the company or changing their role. And that's, that's another thing that stifles growth and that, that entrepreneurs get tripped up on along the way. Yeah. And I think that really goes back to pivoting, not mm-hmm. only uh, pivoting the products and services you're offering, but pivoting on the, the people that are around you mm-hmm. um, and having people who feel the energy in the room when they're yeah. in there, not when they have left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. So I want to give you an opportunity uh, to touch on lobby uh, CRE, if you wouldn't mind. I know yeah, you're really you. excited about that. Um, especially with how much uh, commercial real estate is growing, not only in Charlotte, but uh, worldwide right now. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, so Lobby CRE is a data management platform that was developed out of a, a holding company here in Charlotte called 30 Capital. 30 Capital is run by a very successful guy named Rob Finlay. Um, he's the mastermind and owner of IMS, which is a very successful commercial real estate company here in Charlotte. I met him in the early days of IMS. He had started a company called Quiet Stream Financial that had probably 15 or 16 subsidiary companies. And ultimately he collected a couple of them together and rolled that out as IMS, sold a couple of the others. Um, but he's, and he also owns a company called Commercial Defeasance, which is one of the, one of the most successful commercial real estate companies 
arguably in, in the world. He started it about 18 years ago. Um, he owns a large portfolio of properties. He owns commercial defeasance, which is really almost a, a banker of sorts to the commercial real estate industry. And as a result of managing all of those properties and all of the financial transactions that he manages, he has developed a holding company that he incubates software ideas for his own companies. Mm. And so he's built a handful of products through the, through the last decade. And Lobby was one when I was helped when level, he was one of our earlier clients, one of our early big clients. And so we, we became kind of friendly through that process and I'd always admired him. And Lobby is a data management platform that he developed for pulling in all the different data sources. There's all sorts of data that you're looking at if you're a commercial real estate owner. Uh, you're, you, on the acquisition side, you might be looking at an offering memorandum. You might be looking at 30 of them in a month. They're these information packets that your, your broker sends you when you're thinking about buying new properties. Mm. Uh, once you already own a property, you've got a property management system like RealPage or Yardy or, or Rentman. Um, You've got lease lease management systems. You've got cash forecasting systems. You've got all sorts of spreadsheet models that you develop to do your your reporting to your your investors. Um, you've got all sorts of reports that you have to send to your banks. And so he was always um, he was always building applications and then having to integrate with all these data sources. And he said, "Why don't I start with a data management platform that makes it easier to integrate?" and make that the product. And so he was talking about this four years ago when I first met him wow. and I, and I helped him out with a couple things related to it. And then we, we, once I had moved on from the day to day at level, we started talking about getting more serious about this data management platform. And ultimately he, he developed it and, uh, and was using it for his own, um, portfolio and he realized that he didn't want to run. He thought that this needed to be its own company, not just sit inside of his holding company. So he approached me. We did a joint venture. Um, I'm the CEO of it. I work full time on it. Mm. Um, I, I've inherited. A, he, he contributed a, a sales team, a marketing team, a product team, and, a, and an app dev team. So we've got about 15, 16 employees at this point. Uh, it's a funded company, so we don't need to go raise money. Uh, we've landed three customers to date, and we've got probably three or four more that are coming into our early adopter program. And next year is when we're really going to focus on scaling it this year is all about figuring out the messaging figuring out what the product is it is a data management platform which means we ingest data we store that data um, we transform that data we do etl and, and data pipelining and then we ultimately structure that data into a data warehouse and then we have reporting that sits on top of it and really figuring out what type of reporting we need to do and what our customers can best use the platform for um, is really what we're doing uh, right now with our with our early adopters. Yeah. And you said that was started in 2014, right? Or about four no, years? no. 2014 was when IMS was really okay. going okay. and he started developing the concept of it. We the the real development just happened this year. And it and oh, it wow. became we our partnership and um, started in July. Yeah. So, so I joined in mid July with, with Rob and took over as the CEO in July. And he, I would say that really they started building the current version of the software in, in April, if I had to guess. Yeah. And is it just commercial or do you touch on any residential? It, it's strictly commercial. And it's really from the perspective of companies that own real estate. Um, so we're not looking at the brokerages. We're not looking at the the, the bankers were really focused on the companies, uh, what, what you'd call a GP. So when you structure a, a a real estate fund or a private equity fund, you have one lead investor who's the general partner or the mm. GP, 
and then they bring on LPs or limited partners. And we're really focused on selling to the GPs. And they're, the, the biggest investors in the space are publicly traded REITs, REITs, Real Estate mm-hmm. Investment Trusts. And ultimately, we could sell to them as well. But our real target market are, are these guy, guys and gals who are GPs and getting together a group of investors to go buy commercial real estate And they estate need properties. the data to actually monitor what's to, to, with the property. To, to monitor what's happening. Yeah, there's really three things that they need that, that they use the data for, or three buyer personas. One is the owner or the finance function who needs to do investor reporting across all these different systems. Um, one persona is acquisition or the person who's going out and actually acquiring new properties and looking at new properties and deciding when and which ones to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the finance function is much more how do I do reporting to my investors? When should I sell? And when should I refinance? Um, and then the third persona is the asset manager or the operations. They're really looking at how do I make the most money for these assets that I've already bought. Mm. And those those are the three kind of functions that that uh, that we support through the platform. Yeah, and you can have the platform all rolled up into one place and mm-hmm. just have it easily accessible. Yeah, platform you, you get everything. You get everything right there, and and you can build other applications on top of it because we. We the data once it's all put together and normalized um, and harmonized and and cleaned up, you, you it isn't just our application that gets to take advantage of that. Other applications mm-hmm. can then be built on top of oh, it. So as you can well. integrate. Yep. Okay. Great. Great. Um, just a few other quick follow up questions. Mm-hmm. I know uh, we have Sunday football on. Can't really miss too much sure. of that. Um, so with startups, I know you seem like a very thorough investor. What uh what do you really look for? Just a couple key things uh, in entry startups that you like to invest in. So number one is the team. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's almost cliche to say that, but it's it's so true. Um, uh, number one, I want I want people that I believe in that have it, that have that confidence, that have that ability to um, to be stubborn when they need to, but to pivot <laughs> and not be so wedded to their idea that, that they that they miss the real opportunity. Uh, number two, there's just certain spaces that I like better than others because I understand them better. Um, so it, it's much easier to invest in something that I can wrap my head around. So I've done a couple of health oriented investments because I'm, I'm so into fitness and nutrition and that sort of thing. So I've invested in a, in a healthy restaurant concept that, um, uh, that was introduced to me. It was founded by Matt, who was the founder of Amentra. And so we've invested in quite a few things together. I've now invested in his healthy restaurant concept called mm. Dirt. Um, there's another one called Next Bar that's a, a ketogenic um, uh, nutrition bar that that I that I feel very, very uh, firmly about. And it's a space that I understand. Um, and, and it's it's led by a gentleman who uh, who who is uh, very, very talented and, and has it, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and so that's one thing if I understand the industry, but there's other things that I don't necessarily understand, but I just see somebody who's just so completely awesome that, that, that I feel like, okay, I'm going to invest in them. And that was one of the, an example of that is Maggie Williams, who's the founder of Skipper, which is a mm. dog walking service. We built their MVP and she and her husband, Seb or Sebastian, who's no longer in the day-to-day of the company, but it was, was her COO at the time. You could just tell that they were awesome. And so I invested in, I think, their their second round, even though I don't really know anything about dog walking or <laughs> how you scale it or you know, that, yeah. that sort of thing. Same thing I invested in 2U Laundry because Alex and Dan are just fantastic business people. And in their case, they also have have a real track record of building a successful business and they've got a growth plan in front of them. So not just that I really like Alex and Dan, I knew nothing about laundries, the laundry industry. And it wasn't something that I was seeking out, but they were so, they, they really understand the industry, but they've also got an opportunity 
and they've raised $6 million in their plan for how they're going to deploy it is, is I think, a very good plan. And, and, uh, and so that's the other thing is I want to see a plan. What are you going to do? How are you going to scale this? Is this something that can grow a lot? Nobody wants to invest in or work for somebody else's um, lifestyle business. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and so, you know, you want things that are going to potentially grow very, very quickly and have a long runway so that there can be a big exit, you know. And, and you can get a lot of return as an investor from that sort of thing. Yeah. Are you a Shark Tank fan? I've never watched it, to be honest. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that into the concept. I, I right. do like to go to the pitch breakfast event here. Uh, yeah. um, but, I, you know, I, I, I shouldn't say it because I've, I've literally never seen an episode of Shark Tank. I just... Uh, I, I can just imagine the format and the you know what they're doing for for the TV audience, and I and I, I just can't imagine that I would enjoy yeah. it too much. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll send you an older episode that's not as cheesy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, just as I mentioned earlier, you know you've had some uh, exponential success just in a ton of different industries, um, and you really look uh, for really thorough investments within startups. Um, what's some really final advice you would offer for for anyone out there who's really just either trying to grow in their career or grow their business, or really just you know, build success at an early age for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, would, I mean, I would say, you know, just echo what we talked about earlier, build your skills, build your network, get out there in the community. There are meetup events going on mm-hmm. where there's startup founders. Try to seek out events where there are actual founders and not just people talking about it. Um, try to have conversations with the actual founders or people who are very early on in the company. They're busy as hell, but they want, they want to help. They want people to know their story. Um, and, and I would say that as you seek those people out, just be very respectful of their time and make sure that you know, you know, that just make sure that if you get 30 minutes of someone's time while they're running a startup company, that, that you don't waste their, waste their time and that you're respectful of it. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, one more question. What's, uh, some books you would recommend? Cause I know you touched on mm-hmm. learning. Sure. So the, the two that I recommend for anybody are, um, definitely zero to one by mm-hmm. Peter Thiel and, uh, Peter Thiel. And then, uh, and then the hard thing about hard things, which is a, is uh, Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz uh, fame, and uh, but I think both of them are brilliant for different reasons. But uh, but but definitely, I, I recommend those very highly. I think that another really good book that everybody should read is called Bad Blood, and it's an example of how not you know how things go wrong in Silicon <laughs> Valley. It's about Theranos, uh, and and uh, it's a fascinating story about just. Uh, just a train wreck of a company that at one point grew faster than Facebook and Uber combined. Wow. And they're ultimately train wrecked, huh? Yeah. yeah. It's called bad blood. It's, it's really good. Eventually they're going to have to make a movie about it because it was just, it was just, it's, it's an amazing story of, it was all a lie. (laughs) Like at some point it all turned into a lie and they actively deceived people and billions of dollars were lost and multiple careers were ruined um, along the way. Um, Mm. All sorts of cover up. Uh, There were two different, um, president, you know, two different, um, th- there were members of the George Bush senior white house that were involved in it. And there were members of the Obama uh, administration that were part of it. I mean, it, it's really fascinating what a train wreck this thing turned out to be. It's, it's just a great example of the opposite of good leadership and the opposite of yeah. what you, what you should do. Uh huh. Um, for anyone who wants to connect with you or just, uh, look more into lobby CRE or, uh, even your story with uh, level or reward summit, mm-hmm. um, where's the place like on Google or somewhere? Yeah, out? sure. So you can go to my, my podcast is the defiance ventures yep. podcast. It's available. I, I host it on anchor. You can find it on anchor, but it's also available on, on uh, the play store on, on, on Apple podcast, um, Spotify, all the major platforms. Again, it's called the defiance ventures podcast. I do it. I probably release 
three or four a, a month. I don't do it as often as, as I, as I would like to, since I've joined lobby. Um, mm -hmm. that's a good spot. Um, you can follow me on, I don't, I'm not all that active on Twitter, but it's JSB seven one three. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn. It's John SB. I'll, I, I, you'll, you'll know it's me when you see the lobby and the, and the reward summit and next grid and all the companies that we've talked about mm -hmm. on here. Um, th those are probably the best places I'm launching for my holding company is called Defiance and I'm launching the website for that. It's defiance.company. Um, it's not available yet. It's literally being built as we speak, but eventually uh, I'll, I'll have a blog and it'll also reference all of my content. I've got a YouTube channel. The Defiance Ventures podcast is, has a YouTube channel as well. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, uh, once again, thanks for really spending your time and giving some amazing insights for the Next Level Minds podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. I hope hope people get something out of it. Of course, of course. And uh, everyone out there that had the opportunity to listen, um, just first and foremost, thanks again for tuning into this week's episode. I got a lot of value out of talking with John of just uh, really leveraging your networks, but not building them in a selfish way, building them to help other people. As well as uh, early on in your career, don't just focus on the next five or thousand dollars focused on how you can learn from the opportunity at hand and then again in the entrepreneurial space really just growing your company surrounding yourself with the resources and people that you need and really uh something that i think a lot of people is uh, including myself struggle with is knowing when to pivot um, don't become too obsessed with the product um, really pivot if you need to and uh, once again i wanted to personally thank each and every one of you for tuning in to this week's episode of next level minds and as we like to say here your mindset is your greatest weapon for the battle of success. <laughs>